singing this morning. Last stanza of that song is wonderful. I hope when you leave church on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening or a Wednesday night, knowing you're going home to a Christian home, most of you and likely, but there is a longing in our inward man to be with each other. So what a wonderful truth. Luke chapter 17 is where we will be this morning. is the church's anniversary we don't i guess maybe when we get to the 25 year mark or the 50 year mark or all of us that were here in the beginning lose our teeth and hair mark we'll probably celebrate it a little bit more right now it is not just another sunday but it is one that we rejoice in together but don't try to make a big deal out of for us but it is the church's anniversary sunday 14 years ago this coming wednesday on the day why was the first service here at Bluegrass Baptist Church. Not here, actually. It was in the basement of the Cardone building, if you can believe it. Uh, up in town, we were in the basement of that old building with its rusty, cracking, popping pipes and everything else. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a wonderful joy. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but let's do what we need to do first, and that is read the Word of God so we can set the context of what we will preach and speak on this particular morning here in Luke chapter 17 our next principal parable comes in verse number 7 the Bible says Jesus speaking but which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field go sit down to meet and will not rather say unto him make ready wherewith I that is the master speaking I may sup and gird thyself and serve me Till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow, or Jesus is saying, I think not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, here is our mindset, here is our thinking. We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Father, help us this morning as we look at this principal parable. Of all the parables that we will study, this is the hardest. It's why in your wisdom and in your timing, it falls on a church anniversary Sunday. It is the message every member of this place needs to remember. It's the message your pastor always must remember. We are unprofitable. We're just doing what we're supposed to do. God, if there's one here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, this message will be quite foreign to them. If there is a believer here this morning who's far from you, this will be a hard concept for them. This message and this principle is for the mature. God, make it so. Help us as we understand the truth today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me say a few words, if I can, about us as a church this morning. I want to start by saying I'm thankful for every person who has ever joined Bluegrass. The first person to, jo to join is over there in Randy. And I didn't take much convincing. She was my wife, so she said yes. <laughs> this morning we're going to be looking at biblical thinking as our principle. And I hope and pray that that is where we always will be as a church family. Those who think biblically. This morning I have a picture of the charter members of this place. A motley crew to be sure. But really they just represent all of you who've come through the years. Brian and Kim Deering are on the left with their boys Zach and Cole. Neil and Cookie's son and daughter. Neil and Cookie ended up at the church because of them. Brian and Kim ended up at the church because of them. And they're grateful. 
next to them are Bob and Brenda. Now, Jolie's sitting next to Bob this morning. Brenda's probably in the nursery somewhere or serving back there. But Brother Bob came to the church after 27 years being a pastor. You want to talk about intimidating? Try planting a church and have a 27-year veteran pastor as one of your first charter members. I couldn't preach anything wrong. Brother Graham was faithful every visitation. He still is faithful in almost every visitation. Fourteen years later. I don't know, Brother Graham, it's been a while since I've gone with you. My dad has the privilege of going with you now, but he always starts his time on door knocking this way. Hi, I'm Bob Graham. My dad's Billy Graham. <laughs> you still start that way? We all know Jolie in the next person group there, but the one on her lap is Kate, and the one behind her, I'm not sure who that is. <laughs> Some long-haired hippie, Woody. Jason decided when he started losing his hair to shave it off. I haven't gotten quite to that point, but I'm getting closer. There in the middle are Jessica and I. Next to them are Mark and Debbie Wood, still here in the back. Mark has been the church treasurer since almost the beginning. Next to them are Brian and Stacy Watson. Your wedding anniversary is this week because their wedding anniversary was the first day we had a church service. Would you have come to a church you didn't know anything about on your wedding anniversary? They did. And little KK, that's what we used to call her, now we have to call her Kaylee, sitting on her lap. Mike and Jeannie Strong next to them. Mike was the first man I led to the Lord here in this church and baptized. And on that charter side in the service, I baptized Mike in a borrowed baptistry of a church here in town. I wouldn't use their name, but they told me when I called them and said, could we please borrow your baptistry? We have a rented building. We don't have anywhere to baptize someone. They said it hasn't been used in three years. It has cracks and it leaks and there's no hot water. And I said, that'll be fine. And so we met and we baptized. Graciously, that church let us use it. And Mike, who's afraid of water, got baptized and was in cold water. And when he came back out, he said, whoa. <laughs> Thank you. You can take the picture down. Not pictured there also in the early days. And charter members, but not in that picture where Billy and Kathy Marshall, they're out of town today, but Billy and Kathy have been lifesavers to Jessica and I many a time. Before family members moved here, when we had Nate, it was between Billy and Kathy and Neil and Cookie to sleep on our couch and in our chair to watch our oldest boy so we could have, give birth to our youngest boy. It was actually Miss Kathy on the morning that Nate was born. It was Easter Sunday morning. Uh, he was born that afternoon, and someone got saved that morning, and I was in the church dealing with them and leading them to the Lord. And Miss Kathy came in, and she said, Pastor, this is important, but you need to go home. Your wife is having a baby. <laughs> Thankfully, the young lady got saved, and we successfully had Nate later that afternoon. And then another family that's not pictured there that were very influential in those early days were Brandon and Jenny Buffett, a wonderful couple. Folks that we love very dearly and have enjoyed watching their children grow up as well. I am grateful and I rejoice over every family member that has ever been part of this church, ever. Many of those families of you are still here and you're faithfully serving the Lord. Some of those families have gone on to other churches and are faithfully serving their Savior in those churches. And I'm grateful for that. That is the role of a church and a pastor, is to grow people in their walk with the Lord so that they can be effective servants. A few families through the years have fallen away or fallen out of attending church. Maybe right now they might be listening or watching. We'd love to see them back. We'd love to see them part of any good church and serving the Lord. Bluegrass has never been about building some sort of dynastic empire of greatness in the preacher. We do not have a great preacher. You have a sinner saved by grace. I'm the last.
last person many thought could be a pastor, and probably many were right. <laughs> Rather, the church has always been about teaching faith in Christ and encouraging people to live out their faith in their daily endeavor. That's all we want you to do. Here's an amazing statistic I came across this week. 50% of all churchgoers go to the top 10 attendance churches. What that means is, if your church is of high attendance numbers, most of the people that go to church go to those churches. By the way, what does that prove to us? People are cheap. All that statistic tells me when I read it is that people are cheap. I'm amazed that a church of 12 in the first few months could grow to a church of over 300 in attenders, members, and regular comers on a Sunday morning. We actually have 265 members on our membership rolls and just around 300 in regular attenders and those that come. Now, right now, not everyone shows up on the same Sunday. If you did, I don't know where we'd put you all. We find a place, we always have. The point is we're a church with an active and growing congregation and that is a testimony to God's love and your faithfulness. By the way, do you know where that puts us as a church on the spectrum of church sizes? I have a church of about 300. I asked Edward this week, where does that place us? He said, it's maybe in the top 80 percentile of churches. It puts us in the top 90% size-wise of all churches in America. It shows you the condition of the church in America. It shows you the need for good, healthy, godly churches with good, growing Church members. In fact, if we were to take that statistic worldwide, I thought we were in the top 95 percentile. Where actually, when you take the whole world and the population of churches worldwide, it puts us in the top 97 percentile. Now, I'm about to deflate our bubble. Don't worry. That's what the message is about. We could sit back and say, "Wow, we've made it. We've arrived." And the answer is. It depends on what your destination was. If your goal is to reach the world for Jesus Christ, we're nowhere close to arriving. We've not even come close to reaching Georgetown. By the way, population-wise, we're less than half of 1% of the entire population of Scott County. we got a lot of work to do. We need to roll up our sleeves. We need to become dutiful, obedient servants. Today's sermon in our series of principal parables will be a little out of the ordinary because it is an anniversary Sunday and there'll be some allusions and illustrations towards that. However, the parable that we read here in Luke chapter 17 verses 7 through 10 could not be more perfect and timely for what we need to hear today. It is what we must put our attention on on a day when we reflect and yes, rejoice in the goodness of God upon our church family. With this in mind, I want us to look at the principal parable of biblical thinking. This parable is, in the is the final parable in a series that Jesus gives in one sitting. Take your Bible and look back to chapter 15 of Luke, and you'll find where Jesus sits down and begins this series of parables. In chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now, we talked about chapter 15. Those three parables show us the divine perspective of salvation. Jesus Christ, the good and chief shepherd, goes out to find the sheep. The Holy Spirit is symbolized, illustrated, in the woman who sweeps the house looking for the lost coin. And the Father in heaven waits to receive sinners back to himself. Then in chapter 16, we found the parable was not anymore on salvation, but it moved. And the congregation was not the crowd at, at large, but rather the disciples in particular. And the message to the disciples in particular was, do not be an unjust steward. What you have been given, you must use properly for God's glory. 
here in Luke chapter number 17. The parable is given in verse number 1 unto the disciples, but there is a key and core group that understands the parable, or at least understands the message and the teaching from verses 1 through 4, and the parable is actually directed at that core group from verse number 5. And the Bible tells us in verse 5, the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. We have gone from a large crowd where he receives sinners to a group that he wants to understand the principle of stewardship of the sanctifying process in our life to now service from those who say they love him. And so this morning on this anniversary Sunday, I ask each of you that's a member of this place, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? If we are going to always remain a viable, vibrant church in our community, we can never lose sight of true biblical thinking. Jesus, in these three chapters, according to Luke's account, never gets up. It's one sequence after another. And what he's doing is he's telling us salvation is for all. Stewardship is for those who want to follow him. But if you want to be a servant of Jesus Christ, you've got to think this way. From Luke chapter 17. And so we understand that biblical thinking begins first with our Savior's message. Verses 1 through 4, Jesus gives to the disciples a pretty clear message. He sets to giving a message on faith and forgiveness. That is the core of his purpose in coming to earth. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to provide the way of repentance, the way of salvation. He came to be the atoning redemption. He came to be that sacrifice for sin. And so he could grant forgiveness to us. So he comes to this place of service. And the parable in verses 7 through 10 is not unconnected to. It is directly tied to the first five verses. In verses 1 through 4, Jesus teaches a message hard for our flesh to hear. Difficult for our ears of this world to accept. It is first a message of total forgiveness. It's a message of forgiveness. We know it's total because it's seven. The companion passage to this in Matthew chapter number 18, he tells them it's 70 times seven, which is 490 times, meaning it is completion to perfection in judgment. Ten is the number of judgment. Seven is the number of completion. It's total and complete in our judgment of being forgiving souls to one another. Jesus begins by stating the obvious in verse number one. Then said he unto his disciples, it is is impossible but that offenses will come i can tell you in 14 years i would dare say that i have offended pretty much everybody in this room at some point i don't try to i don't hope to i don't set out to now you may think differently but i don't i can tell you that over 14 years very few times but on occasion there have been offenses that have come my way what jesus says here that if you're going to be a grown-up and mature christian you have to know the obvious offenses will come but notice what he finishes by saying but woe unto him through whom they come <laughs> you know we often put our focus on the first part well you know we're just gonna offend one another don't plan on it don't try to do it. Don't hope to. Man, today, I hope I get this going good. Man, I hope I really get past this spun up. You might. Verse number two, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, the little ones here has a meaning. It has a context. Of course, it means those who are younger, immature. And so we find in other passages in the Gospels, Jesus is talking about little children, in fact, who are here with him. But in this context, it doesn't seem that there's any little children here with him. So we have to take, we have to understand the teaching and the preaching here would be right and accurate to say he's talking about or alluding to those who are immature in their faith, those who are not spiritually strong. 
He says, buddy, if you're mature, you better be careful if you go about offending people on purpose. Take heed to yourself, verse 3, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day, turning into thee and say, I repent, thou shalt what? Hold it over his head. What's it say? Look in your Bible. Verse 4, thou shalt forgive him. <laughs> That's pretty hard. I don't think I can do that. Nobody asked you to think that way. Jesus' message to you is, one of forgiveness. If we understand the context here, Jesus is saying, don't go around in the church being a troublemaker. Don't go around in the church family and be a person who causes the problems. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus moves on to the trespasses as opposed to the offenses. Trespasses are things that are done wrong to us, but they weren't necessarily planned. You could have in the Old Testament a trespass offering. You could not have an offering of planned, knowing, willful sin. There were no such offerings under the law for that. And so what Jesus is saying is that there are going to be times when people hurt your feelings, and they didn't mean to. Discernment in the Christian life is figuring out if they meant to or not. And taking them at their word. These are different in verses 3 and 4 than the intentional targeted offenses. Though the principle of forgiveness for a mature believer can cover both. The law of grace can. Jesus says in verses 3 and 4, when someone wrongs you and asks for forgiveness, then you and I are to forgive them. Follow the pattern carefully. Now put this in your notes. Someone trespasses us. We rebuke them. He or if he or she repents then we must forgive them. Now, most of us on that last statement would say, we might forgive them. And Jesus said, no, no, you're not thinking the right way. You must forgive them. I remember years ago, well, something happened in the church family, and someone called all of the deacons in, and the deacons will remember this, those that were deacons in, and they sat down, and I had found or discovered that I had offended them in a certain way, and in that process, that man who had called those deacons said, you offended us, you did wrong by us, and I said to them in front of the deacons, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I didn't know it, but I didn't care. I didn't say, I didn't know it, please forgive me. I said, Please forgive me. And the man said in reply, I don't know that I can. And one of the deacons said, it's not up to you. You're commanded to forgive. And I sat back in my chair and thought, oh, I'm glad he's on my side. <laughs> the truth is he was on God's side. Right. I don't know if I can forgive you. Forgive. Yeah. Oh, this is hard. Imagine someone doing that same thing seven times, and seven times you go and lovingly rebuke them, and seven times in truth and in honesty on the same day with legitimacy, that soul, that person, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl repents and asks forgiveness. What do you do then? Jesus says, forgive them. How many times a day does Jesus Christ advocate in forgiveness in heaven before our Father for us? Seven times? Twenty times? Four hundred and ninety times, like he says in the other passage? Seventy times seven? The message of Jesus here is to mature followers of his, and that message is you need to be a people of forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 was a verse I had to learn because my mother made me when I was a kid. I was an angry little soul, and I would not forgive anybody. You did me dirty, and I'm going to do you dirty, especially if it was on the ball field. My mother made me memorize, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching. It is a message of forgiveness. The apostle's response is priceless. Look at verse number five. And the apostles said unto the Lord, we can do that. Well, what did they say? To increase our faith. You know what that could be phrased?
phrase that as today? Boy, that's impossible. We can't do that. They're just saying, look, you're going to have to make this possible in our life. By the way, he will. So the message of forgiveness, letter B, requires faith. That's what's being taught in the message here to us. Effectively, what the apostles are claiming back to Christ is we cannot do that on our own. And he says, I know. But you don't need that much faith. That's what verse 6 is so wonderful in teaching us. Sometimes we have this picture that there's like this big reservoir of faith that we must have. And Jesus says, no, faith is very small. Do you know why faith is very small? Because you and I are very small. In the scope of an infinite God, we finite human beings just, just live breaths of life. The Bible says that our life is but a vapor. And so the faith that we must have is not great, grand, or glorious. It's just consistent. It's faith. Sometimes we don't do things as Christians because we're waiting for the big reservoir to break of faith to come flooding to our life and say, I can do this now. And the answer is no, it will never come that way. Jesus says, look, you just have to have a little bit of faith. Look what he says in verse number six. If ye had faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be planted in the sea and it should obey you. I have a picture of a sycamine tree. And that's what it is in the Middle East. That's a sycamine tree. That's what Zacchaeus climbed up in. There it was called a sycamore tree. All right, keep it there for a second, John. I told him in the back, keep it up for 10 seconds and move away, but I just lied, all right? I didn't mean to. If I offended you, brother, please forgive me, okay? See, the message always helps. Look at the roots on that thing. I had four or five other pictures that had these really crazy roots. I had one where there was three men. It was kind of weird, the men. I didn't know who they were, so I didn't want to use them in church. I might be weirdos. But the point is these three men were sitting on these roots, and they looked tiny. Apparently, this is only a modest-sized sycamine tree. I have this picture that as Jesus is teaching in the place that he's seated, out in the courtyard of the house or just beyond where they are all seated, he's looking and he sees the sycamore tree. And he says, look, if you had the grain of a mustard seed, which apparently is a small seed or a grain of a seed, he said, you can take this massive tree and its massive root structure and you can literally pluck it up by the roots and you can just cast it into the sea. And yet we try to make faith like it's some massive, mountainous, momentous thing that we will never have. And so we never have to live that way. Yeah. And Jesus says, it's just a little bit. All you have to do today is trust and obey. That's faith. All right, you may go back to the requires faith slide earlier. I had to coach him up. Get, get his way. This morning, maybe someone in this church has offended you. Let me give you a good message to preach on the anniversary Sunday. The body is healthy and whole when forgiveness and faith are exercised regularly. Maybe somebody has trespassed against you. They've hurt you, and they don't even know it, and they didn't mean it. Why not lovingly go and rebuke them? Rebuking them does not mean it goes, hey, you dirty, rotten sinner, you hurt my feelings. But I'll forgive you if you'll ask. <laughs> might get a knuckle sandwich. <laughs> might come back with a few missing teeth. But somebody might have offended you. Someone might have trespassed against you. And if they have, your responsibility is to go to them. Well, I'm just going to go tell pastor. Listen. Most people through the years that have come and told pastor, I will say to them, have you gone and lovingly rebuked them or gone and talked to them yet? No, I was hoping she would do it. <laughs> I always smile and generally will say this, and I'm hoping you will. Because that's the biblical model. I'm not trying to shirk my responsibilities. We really need to sit down, and we need to have a third person in there. That is also a biblical model. There is also biblical room for that. But the problem is, that's what we go to instead of going to solve the problem. The Savior's message to a mature body is, go and seek to restore one another. Because that's what Jesus came to do. To restore the sinner through salvation. 
By the way, if someone comes to you today and says that you have hurt them or what you did to offend them, don't get mad. Smile in meekness and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I mean it. And when they walk away, don't say, Far too many of our good independent Baptist churches, this is how people operate. <clears throat> From the pastor to the newest person in the pew, it's an affront to God. Right. We just need to have the same mindset as these apostles. Our Savior's message is one of forgiveness and faith, the basis for salvation. But we also see in verses 1 and 5 where our strength is manifest, number 2. Our strength is manifest. There's two groups that are noted here, and they, we do well to understand them this morning. If the group in Bluegrass 101 hears a little redundancy, I ask their indulgence and forgiveness. I neither meant to offend or trespass against your time and wasting it. We talked about this a little bit in the Sunday school hour with them. But for any church to be healthy, there always has to be two core groups within her membership. And they're found here in verses 1 and 5. The first manifestation of a church's strength is found, letter A, in the presence of learners. That's what a disciple is in verse number one. What differentiated the disciple from the publicans and sinners from chapter 15 in verse one? Or from the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And the answer is they had trusted in Jesus Christ and were now sitting at his feet wanting to learn from him. They were disciples. In verse 1 of chapter 17, the message is delivered to the disciples or those who, or, who are intent and intentional learners. If you are a member of Bluegrass Baptist Church, you should know by now that our purpose statement is summarized. It summarizes what our intent is as a body whole. And that is that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who love God, who love one another, and who intentionally, on purpose, with meaning, share the gospel. We don't accidentally hope that people learn about Jesus. We are about the work of teaching people and showing people and demonstrating what salvation means. These learners here in verse number one in this setting were being taught the importance of forgiveness here. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus teaches his disciples a whole lot of messages about a whole lot of Christian living. We do well to learn each of those lessons. For today, it is one of Forgiveness that is based or built in requiring faith in our part. If we become a people who no longer respond to God's word, who no longer seek to be learners of the truth and then doers, not hearers only, then we as a body are in deep trouble and we won't last long. Right. If this church is filled up with just believers, understand what I'm saying here. From the beginning of our church, we have believed and others have come into our midst and taught and helped understand the, the principle even deeper. There is the believer in Jesus Christ, there is the follower of Jesus Christ, and then there is the disciple of Jesus Christ. And all of us, from the moment of salvation until the moment God calls us home or we go by way of the grave to our eternal reward, we are somewhere along that spectrum of believer, follower, disciple question this morning is, are you a learner at the feet of Jesus? If you are, then you are moving deeper into that discipleship process with God Almighty. Amen. I say again, if we become a people who no longer respond to God's word, we are in deep trouble. Friend, fellow church member, we ought to always to seek God's word first and foremost. You do not come to this place for fellowship on a Sunday morning. You do not come on a Sunday evening or a Wednesday night. Those might be byproducts at those times, but in those times you come to worship the holy God of heaven. Amen. And you seek to be fed from the word of God. That's why Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, whomever it is that stands behind this desk is charged with preaching the word of God and the word of God alone. Amen. 
I was reminded yesterday by Jason that over 14 years my preaching has gotten nominally better. <laughs> what are friends for? Our strength is manifest in the presence of learners, but verse number five is also manifest in the pattern of her leaders. What differentiated the apostle from the disciple? The apostle was particularly called out by God, Jesus Christ himself. Their call here was to have an ever-increasing faith. This is the essential pattern for good leadership, always deepening their relationship with God, always expanding their faith in God, always demonstrating that trust in God. The church begins to die the moment the leadership no longer wants to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you should not be part of this place if the leadership of this place ceases to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not really a message that keeps people here, Pastor. It should. When the leadership thinks that it has arrived in their faith, it has failed in their duty. Right. Simply put. By the way, that's where the parable is going out. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. It's not just in their call for the leaders to have a deepening faith. But it's in their conviction. The convictions, excuse me, their convictions must become a we can do whatever God wants us to do conviction. If you've been here, especially if you've been here probably pre-2015, we were itty-bitty, teeny-weeny. We were a tiny church. It wasn't until about 2014, 2015 that we actually cracked the threshold of having 100 people show up on a Sunday morning. The very first service that we ever had in this place, there was friends and family, folks from the church that sent me out in, in Fairfax, Virginia, Fairfax Baptist Temple. There was 170 people in church. It took us until 2019 to have more than 170 in church again. That's 11 years. You say, well, you were a big failure. You're probably right. But the truth of the matter is, it was a seed that was slowly growing, ever, ever deepening its roots. We have never not believed that God can do anything through this church. Amen. We've always believed that he can. This morning, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I cannot go through these circumstances. I cannot make it through this trial or this trouble. I cannot last in this relationship one second more. I can say to you, yes, you can by faith. If I'm foolish enough to believe that our church alone can change the world. Now, let me stop for a second. Do you believe that? So these disciples and apostles, if you were to fast forward to Acts chapter number 1, gathered in the upper room after Jesus' ascension into heaven in the waiting of the coming of the Holy Ghost. They were known as the first church, the church of Jerusalem. Do you know how many people were in that group? 120. By the way, just for giggles this morning, 120 people in here is probably just this side or just this side of the congregation. Do you believe that just this side could actually change the world like the first church did? Do you on this side believe that you, as a body of believers, if it was just you, that you could change the world? And the answer is if you don't believe that, then you need to have an increasing, deepening faith in Jesus Christ. I have believed from the day that we planted the church, not that it would be about us, but it, it was our responsibility to change the world. Amen. If you're a member of this church, you better have that same kind of faith. Because you change your world, and I go about changing the world that I live in, and guess what happens to the world at large? It starts to change. Yeah. Pastor, you're just saying that. No, friend, I believe that. 
If I take my task seriously and you take your personal lives and ministries seriously, then God can and will work through us to reach and change our church, our community, our commonwealth, our country, and yes, even this globe. You say, well, it's too close to the end. How do you know that? Are you God? I mean, all the signs are pointing that it is near the end. But you know what that does for a lot of Christians? I'm just checking out. What if God's not coming back for another thousand years? You just wasted your life. Congratulations. Who wants to waste their life? Who wants to get to heaven and go, oops? I don't. There came a point in the time that I was working for my own selfish means and my own selfish ends through a public tragedy, that was 9-11, and a personal situation that I had to work through in my faith, and I had to understand or come to an understanding from the Word of God. And through those two circumstances, I finally got to this realization, what am I doing that matters? Amen. And the answer at that time was, how much? I dropped a couple tithe checks in two or three times a month in the church, and I would show up to grace him with my prayer. Is that what you want to be? Because that's who we are. The apostles were serious about doing Christ's work, but they did not yet fully understand the source of their power. Their power and our power this morning comes from Christ and Christ alone. Our total surrender and yielding to him produces change in us, and it affects a change on our environment. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us to be both salt and light in the world. Our Savior's message and then our strength being manifest leads us finally to our parable, and some of you are looking at the clock and saying, you've gone long. I've offended you. Please forgive me. <laughs> gives to us a simple principle for success in serving him in his parable. Jesus in the parable intends for the secret to be made known, number two. Here it is. Look, the secret to success as a Christian is extremely simple. Don't think much of yourself. Amen. The moment that I start thinking that my messages are great and my service is wonderful, that our church is a smashing success, then I've lost sight of the true secret and it will be gone. So you better enjoy me saying things like, I'm a terrible preacher, I know that. You say, well, do you really believe that or is that just false humility? The answer is, every time I put a message together, I think it might be one of my worst. You can ask my wife. The secret to spiritual success and a joyful Christian life can be summarized in the statement, we serve Christ selflessly. So letter A, serve Christ, verses 7 through 9. We read that in our text this morning. The, the parable here, by the way, is very abrasive to our flesh. Because we want recognition. We want God to give us a well done, thou good and faithful servant. But friends, that doesn't happen until you reach heaven's shore. This parable tells us that. Yeah, but... Pastor, sometimes I want an attaboy. Wait until heaven. You'll have a great one then. God is not maniacal, by the way. He's just logical. He's the king. He loves us and knows what's best for us. Man, we just finished vacation Bible school. Woo! Which was tough. And I only came three of the five nights. What would happen, by the way, if the 30 servants at Bluegrass who just finished a large and industrious effort for Christ within the church or maybe another ministry that I'm not thinking about right now, within the community, all wanted God to endow them and bestow them with a high honor in front of everyone right then? That would be tough. It can get real competitive real quick on the grand stage of temporal rewards. God says no. Just serve. Be happy being a servant doing your duty to me. Our joy is not derived from the attaboys from God, but from doing our duty. If you can get that this morning, you can do great things for God. Yes, the Bible says, let another man praise thee and not thine own lips. But some of us are sitting around going, 
That's what we're doing. You say, are you thinking about me? No, I'm thinking about me. I have to remind myself when I'm brushing my teeth and looking in the mirror. Why? Because we're all human flesh. We all want the attaboy. We all, that's why this parable is the hardest of the ones we will look at. Because it is abrasive to who we are. It cuts us. It corrects us. Pastor, everybody wants to be recognized at some point. It takes us to the second part of the secret. That is, serve Christ selflessly. If verse 10 is not underlined in your Bible, I would underline it. I would box it. I would star it. I would put in the margin, secret to success. Amen. In previously, previous ministry life, I used to give all coached. I love coaching. Of all of the things that I've ever done besides pastoring, it is the one thing I love almost to the same level of pastor. I loved it. I loved shaping those young men. I loved being engaged with them. I loved the camaraderie. I loved every part of it. My wife has signed me up to coach my eight-year-old soccer team, and I can promise you on that level, I will not love it as much. <laughs> but those high school boys, you could see the light go on. You could see them start to figure out that life was more than just this world. The life and things in life don't always go the way you plan, but it's still rewarding to just put in the effort day by day. Yeah. This verse in verse 10, it's always a reminder to me of Jesus Christ, the greatest Christian life coach. Here's what you need to say. I, I could imagine how well it would go for Tony Robbins if he got up and gave this verse to some people. Here's what you need to say. Tony Robbins, no one? Okay. Bill Self You need to wake up today and call yourself unprofitable. Is that what the world's mantra is? No. That's what Jesus said. Do you know why true Christianity is so offensive to mankind? Why simple and true faith in Jesus Christ is generally rejected? Because true faith in God eviscerates and eliminates us. Our flesh and our natural pride are done. Instead of our flesh being elevated, true faith elevates God and God alone. Here in this parable is a man or a woman who has served and served and served and comes home to the master and rests and wants to kick up his feet and get some satisfaction. He wants to get some me time, some personal self-worth and self-gratification. And the master comes and says, no, take care of me. Our natural flesh revolts at such a notion. He says, hey, God, I need some me time. And God in this verse says, no, you don't. This thinking is so far from our modern religious practices and preaching that it's a foreign concept to us. The modern message kind of goes like this. God loves you, and he wants you to love you some you. That's what they say. Jesus here says, don't love you some you, love you some me. He says, love me. Here in verse 8, he says, serve me. We know we're to live for him. Only think of me, Jesus said. Stop thinking about you at all. Amen. But pastor, I need to take care of myself sometimes. Can I ask a question? Who's better to take care of you, you or God? That's why I'm trying to drive home to you. Because can you just take care of me and my stuff? Jesus, not Kyle. Jesus' stuff. Jesus then will be concerned with taking care of all of your stuff. He's the king. He's the master. The master does not want his servant miserable. He wants him exuberant and glad and joyful in this life. When you take the mindset of taking care of yourself, just sometimes, 
You are going against the happiest and holiest way that you can live or think. Right. Take care of God. His word, his word, his will. Obey his commands. In fact, that's what he tells them. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? You're supposed to do these things, Jesus said. This is not a self-affirming message that would resonate well with Pastor Rick, Dr. Joyce, or Reverend Joel. The sad reality is we have a lot of Christians who think only of themselves constantly today. It is that exact thinking of yourself that makes you an unprofitable servant. Yet they'll go around telling everyone, themselves, others, and possibly even God, that they're quite necessary and that they are profitable to his kingdom. I'm important to God. At best, any of us who are followers of Christ are obedient, selfless, and truly unprofitable in our thinking, in the sense that we don't think much of ourselves. In fact, we don't think of ourselves at all. We just go out and do the job that God's given us to do. Amen. Then we find our true value and profit, because the only value and profit we have comes in our faithful, diligent service back to our loving Savior. In closing, here's a message for the membership of Bluegrass on this anniversary Sunday. Go out, serve God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as you do so, consider, consider yourself nothing more than an unprofitable servant to the greatest king and master you will ever know. If you take that kind of biblical thinking with you, then you will never be offended by others whom you serve and who serve with you. You will never need to have your faith increased because you're simply obeying his words, his commands, his ways to accomplish his will in this life. The secret of our parable is the key to success. Think nothing of yourself. Think only of Christ and serve him with your whole life. Amen. Pastor, this message may not bring more people to the church. I know. But it will teach those in our church how we ought to be thinking. And when we're thinking the right way, we become very attractive to the world. Because the world wants to know why we're so different. What it is that brings joy in the midst of tragedy. What brings satisfaction when the whole world is falling apart. It's because we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This little parable and principle is so hard to grasp that the Spirit of God has Dr. Luke next week followed up with parables on prayer, because, buddy, you're going to have to learn how to pray. That's chapter 18. It's only through prayer that we'll be able to maintain and retain the true humble thinking required by Christ in this day and age. Father, help us, I pray. If